It's been a long time since the last potty. I've had a little bit going on. A um, couple little touchdowns, couple comebacks. But after getting hassled a little bit and feeling again about wanting to do a podcast, we're back, we're here. Back up in Andorra, where I recorded the last one with Matt Heyman. So a good place to record podcasts. And a little bit of a different one today. Um, we're getting to the pointy end of the year where some contracts are getting done, people are moving teams, new guys are getting signed, Neo Pros they're called, and I'm with a young Australian, a friend of mine that I've met along the way, his name's Nick Shields, and he's approaching the point of be- turning from an amateur into a pro, um, he's in that negotiations at the moment, The it's probably the most stressful time of the year for anyone who's renewing their contract. Um, But what I wanted to talk to Nick about today was, I've, I've nicknamed it the jump. Pretty much, I want to describe, and I think something that gets underestimated with Australians, and also Europeans, what Australians have to do to make that step from Australia to Europe to become a professional or to to live their dream and to ride as yeah to, to make a living out of cycling um, and I wanted to discuss with Nick who's who's made that jump in the last few years and is at that pointy end of finally uh, pursuing his dream and making a living out of it so welcome to the potty Nick thanks Mitch um, pleasure to have you here been some uh, it's been a Big year for you, mate. Um, he's just come off a race called Tour de l'Avenir, which is, they nickname it the Mini Tour de France. It's the Juniors Tour de France. What's, what do they nickname it in French? Yeah, well, the, the translation is Race of the Future. Race of the Future. Yeah. Um, Nick was able to win a stage there, which essentially is like winning a stage of the Tour de France in the future. Um, and you know, he's, he's done everything right as an amateur to make that step into professional, into it, to become a professional. Um, but just to pull it back a little bit before we get into that, I pretty much want to just dumb it down and talk to Nick or Shieldsy as I call you. Let's go back to what actually is the jump? What does it take? To come across from Australia, yeah. What, in your opinion, when you were a junior, when you started cycling, what did you see as what I'm talking about? The jump. Yeah, I guess uh, I always um, saw cycling as a European sport, mm. um, even from a very young age, um, having to follow it um, sort of outside normal hours in in Australia, um, sort of got the idea pretty early that there wasn't really much going on in the way of uh, top-end cycling in Australia, aside from the Tour Down Under at the time. Um, and I guess from that moment, uh, I probably would have been 10 when I realised wow. that. Um, I sort of always dreamed of making the jump to Europe and coming across um, at some stage. Um, I didn't really know when that would be um, and just kept chipping away ever since, really. So from the age of 10, you're already like... All right, I like cycling. I like it enough that I want to race where it is seen as, you know, the top in Europe. 
I want to go across there, make that my life. You already knew that at age 10. Yeah, I mean, wow. possibly even before. Really? Um, I started just before I turned seven. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was hooked um, to the point that my parents thought it was just going to be a week long sort of obsession. And then yeah. it passed, but it didn't. Um, and it's been the same ever since, really. I've lived and breathed it. And um, yeah, the older I got, the more I knew I wanted to be um, at the heart of it. Yeah, right. And in those early times, like your parents, you spoke about them, were there people that tried to deter you and like, look, mate, that's a big step, you know, you got to leave Australia, you got to live in Europe, you know, and you were like, no, no, I know what I want to do. Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. Like, oh. I couldn't have asked for more supportive parents, really. Yeah, right. Um, super relaxed, always just pretty much let me do what I wanted on the, <laughs> on the sporting side of things. Um, never any pressure and... Um, then when at the end of my uh, two years in junior, under 19, so it would have been 17, 18, when I really decided that I was going to go to Europe, um, yeah, there was, they didn't hold me back. And I think they, they knew because it had already been, you know, six, seven, eight years of having that drive to, to make the jump and they were probably already at peace with it and they probably knew I was, I was going to be doing that and they were, yeah, just fully in support of that decision. And you just say it so easily then when I was, you know, 18, I was, I was going to go across to Europe, but what does that actually entail? Because on a cycling terms of things, I see it as pretty much two paths. There is one path if you're good enough or if you choose, if you're good enough and choose to go to the Australian Institute of Sport, they've got a program set up in Italy where they support a young, a small group of guys to try and make them professional. And I see that as a, I wouldn't say easy path, but it's a bit smoother, you know, like there's accommodation there, you're hanging out with Aussies, you know, everything's sort of set up. The racing's still just as hard, but it can be a little bit more comfortable. And when you said before, you know, I was going to make that step to Europe, was that through the AIS or were you just like, you know what, I'm just going to take a flight and go over and do it or? Um, well, I got a taste of the, the base in uh, Northern Italy uh, in my two years in under 19. Oh, right. To the Junior Worlds. Yeah. Um, so I sort of got to see how it all operated there. It was in uh, Castrano at the time. Uh, That's just near Milan, is it? Yeah, 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 near Milan, just outside a city called Varese. Um, the base is still very much in that area, just down the road, 15 minutes. Um, but yeah, I got a taste of, of how the under-23s were living at that point. Um, so in the under-19 ranks, we went there for about five weeks, I think it was. Um, and it was really glamorous. Like, it looked looked like an awesome lifestyle. I thought, yeah, this is easy. Um, you know, there's nothing better. It's super warm. It's sunny. Um, good good coffee. Um, <laughs> good piadinas. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I basically... What's a piadina? Yeah, piadina is like a, a wrap, sort oh, of right. toasted. Um, yeah. not, like a pin, not like a panini. A little bit, but on like a sort of a, a wrap uh, oh, bread. Yeah. It's sort of folded in half. Yeah, oh, it's right. pretty good. Um, well, like prosciutto and... Yeah, yeah. mozzarella and okay. all the good Italian stuff. Nice. Um, but yeah, at that point, I thought it was... It was going to be... My goal was to make that program at the end of those two years. So you were there and you're like, I've got a taste. This is the golden ticket. I've got to get an AIS for under 23. 
That's what is that what you were thinking? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. yeah I mean, I saw all the guys that I guess I looked up to um, at the time, like uh, Luke Durbridge, Michael Hepburn. Um, I think Rowan Dennis was there as well. It was yeah. the, all of the best Australian under 23s were there. Mm. And I guess being in the Australian under 19 team, I thought I had a, a good shot. Did you um, think that was the only way at that point? Um, no, I'm. I'd sort of heard of a few guys um, having a dabble in France or Belgium, but mm. sort of they never seemed to uh, make it through um, like the guys in the uh, in oh, yeah, yeah. Um, who sort of seemed to spend between two and four years in that program and then be in the biggest teams in the world without question. It yeah. sort of just seemed the norm yeah. and it looked easy. Looked like the best logical way to go. Yeah, yeah. and um, I mean the support there was, was pretty unreal and mm. it still is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I at that point, yeah, I probably thought it was the only option. I didn't really think about anything else, but I just happened to go through a year where, as always, I mean, everyone's generation is pretty good if you talk to them. Mm. Um, but there were guys like Caleb Ewan who I was coming through with, and I mean, it was um, only natural that those guys would take the places um, with their form, and I just think I, I missed out. Yeah, uh, so right. I had to look elsewhere. Yeah, right. So you got that point. You're like, shit, I'm not going to go in the AIS. Um, I guess when I was over there in my second year, I sort of came to the realisation that I wasn't going to be in those two or three guys who, who get were selected. Yeah. yeah, okay, right. And then you, you came back to Oz and did you then think of other options or did you sort of lose hope a bit? Um, no, I started thinking of other options even before the, the Junior Worlds that year. Um, I mean, there was um, there was always talk that when we went back to Australia, there was going to be a selection camp to go into the program. Um, but I guess I didn't really want to take the risk of missing out altogether on going to Europe because mm. that's where my heart was. So um, I started trying to contact people. Um, what, just on a whim? Yeah, pretty much. Really? Um, yeah, like just getting my, uh, my, my coach at the time, Ian Melbourne, to to help me contact people and yeah it was pretty much it was starting before the junior world that year right was well, so just contacting people in france and italy and belgium and stuff or? yeah ian was doing it on my behalf yeah um, just through his links yeah pretty much i think he had links with um i think uh, he had a pretty good link with pat yonker at oh the time. yeah right he had a lot of european connections um and yeah he was just sending my resume out i mean power data and and stuff like that and i guess being in the the australian team at the time helped hmm. um but yeah it was yeah there was nothing concrete until sort of pretty last minute yeah right and so to fast forward to that moment um so when i first met you i think you're in your second year across here yeah um and i want to speak about your you miss out on the ais you had some contact there was with a french team and you eventually went across and went, you know what, I'm just going to give this a shot. Um, yeah, so what was that like? Just leaving, thinking, all right, did you, when you were flying out, were you thinking, yeah, this is my, you know, one year here, quick ticket, and I'm going to be professional after this? Or, I don't know, what were you thinking, actually? Yeah, I was pretty ambitious, for yeah. sure. Um, like, I left Australia full of confidence, um, no fear 
thought it was going to be just like it was when I was over there um, as a junior with a bunch of Aussies yeah. drinking coffee and going for a pedal in the sun. Yeah. Uh, but I left in, in January to yeah. join up with um, yeah French Division One amateur team, which is the in France the highest level of, of amateur racing um, with no age limit. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so I went over to join up with CR Four Zero Arm at the end of January. Where's this team based? Um, about eighty k out of Lyon. Okay. Um, so sort in of in a pretty small town. Um, so south of south. Uh, Sort of east of France, is it? It's it's pretty central France oh, right. towards the east. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, around yeah, Lyon, Clermont-Ferrand, Saint-Étienne. Okay. Wow. So you've just flown. Had you been there before? No. Yeah. No. Um, so yeah, I mean, I thought it was going to be pretty cool. Um, and I, the arrangement was that I was going to go in and uh, spend a couple of days in Rouen and then go to a training camp in Spain mm. um, for ten days with the team. Um, so yeah, I, I landed in Lyon. Um, one of the DSs of the team picked me up. Directors, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One of the yeah, sports directors, and uh, that's when I realised that I couldn't communicate um, <laughs> with the person who was basically going to be in charge of what I was doing. Um, so that was pretty awkward, I guess. Straight away, first five minutes. Yeah, um, yeah. He spoke limited English, very limited English, and I knew zero French I knew you know how to say hello and I thought I knew how to ask for a coffee but soon found out <laughs> I didn't know how to do that either um, but yeah that's I guess I felt pretty stressed straight away yeah like the car trip home was an hour and a half and um, I also remember that was the first time I ever saw snow oh, yeah um, which was cool at the time and again two days later I was pretty over that as well yeah all right so you've landed there and you that was a bit of a wake-up call your first year For there. Sure. And one thing I want to sort of talk about mainly is this this jump over is I think a lot of people sort of underestimate and we spoke about the Aussie guys uh, who get into the AIS and I think they sometimes get a little bit sheltered in a way because they don't get to experience what you just said. A director picking you up who doesn't speak a word of English Chucked in a house, I guess, a share house you were. Yeah, an apartment with one apartment. other French guy. Other French guy who didn't probably speak any English either. The most on my team, actually. His level yeah. of English was, was pretty good. Yeah, right. Compared, yeah, pretty much no one on the team except him spoke English. Okay, so well, that lucky. was handy. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, something that I've sort of realized along the way is it's really important to have that balance of life out of cycling as well and people think oh yeah well, what do you mean by that and I'm like well exactly what we were just saying if you, if things are not going well in cycling you also need to have your own time enjoy your your life outside of the off the bike because you don't have your friends or your family over there um, and maybe you sort of experienced that the first year I can imagine you, you would have yeah, yeah absolutely I mean I, was, I lived and breathed cycling, yeah, I think until halfway through my first year in France. It was all I thought about. Um, everything went well on the bike until that point. Um, so I was never really down um, because of that. Mm. Um, and it wasn't until, yeah, I guess I found myself, yeah, alone, completely alone, 
Um, I couldn't speak to anyone about how I was feeling. Um, and that's when I realized that, yeah, I don't really have much aside from bike mm. riding. Yeah. Right. And then what, what was the, the transformation there? What happened then at that point? Um, I'd always been trying pretty hard to learn French while I was there. It just, it really wasn't easy. Uh, it's completely different to English. Their culture as well is, is a complete contrast to what, what we do and how we are in Australia. Um, but I just couldn't break in. Um, I guess you could say I was always tapping on the door, trying to be a part of, of what they did, but then something would happen. It would just crack me and I'd just be like, why do these people do that? Like, that's just stupid. Um, but give us, give me an example of something that you remember. um, Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of things. Um, oh, I guess, you know, having, uh, Having milk in a protein drink after a stage of, okay. a, of a stage race once was a big no-no. <laughs> um, that made me feel pretty down. But just um, what about like just normal stuff outside of cycling? Did you run into anything like that? Like um, you've got to have a baguette every morning, or you know, brie on your baguette. I don't know. Yeah, I think stuff. yeah, like definitely um, how they like how they socialise is very different. Um, there were often team events. Mm. Um, and they used to crack me as well because everyone just enjoyed each other's company so much, and it was it was really weird because it they just um, yeah it, it was it just felt different yeah, the way okay. they socialised I guess like having red wine and yeah cheese and bread um, sounding pretty bad so far yeah well, <laughs> it, it was though I mean when you can't actually communicate with them, drink this wine these, you're like no yeah you have all these people getting along so well but you can't. Yeah, do okay. it because you don't speak the language. Yeah, you feel um, isolated and more alone, maybe. Yeah, absolutely, and it's really fatiguing because you try to to fit in and then you can't. So um, you end up sitting there on your own. Yeah, and then just contemplating everything. Mm. Uh, exactly, and that's that point we just made there. Um, and not to skip over it too much, but I remember. Well, I guess the first time we met was a really it was a really pinnacle point for me because. You're in your second year um, with the same team, was it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're over the hump a little bit. You know, you'd started to learn the language pretty well. You got your bearings a bit. You, you had transport. You had your own car. You're like, yeah, I'm, I've created my own life here now. And we met up here in Andorra and we just went for a ride. And I remember you were saying a few things that I'd experienced in my, my first couple of years when I was racing um, for a Dutch team living in Holland. And I always remember I caught up with um, a, a Kiwi guy, actually. And it was just great. We just chatted on the bike and I just had a, such a great feeling. And I remember you and I were chatting that day. And you're like, oh, it's just so great to talk to an Aussie. And yeah. and there was many things that I could um, see that were similarities to you and I. And I always remember this one story that you told me, which I think was it was a really pinnacle point. You're like, you know, I got up here in the end, but um, when I came home from my race, before I came up, I, I came home from a race. Maybe you can tell the story. Yeah. But I remember it was a point that you realize, yeah, I'm going to make it here because this could have if crushed me or maybe, and I made it, you know? So what, what actually happened there? Yeah, that was, um, yeah, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, actually. I remember that story. Um, 
Yeah, I'd been at a, a really hard race called the Tour de Pays de Savoie. Yeah. Um, it's a race in the French Alps okay. um, with a lot of really good teams. Um, even pro teams race, race that race. And I was a second year under 23 racing in a French amateur team and I was getting absolutely smashed. Um, on day three of the race, um, actually funnily enough, the first stage of that race uh, finished on the summit where I won the stage in Tour de Lavenir oh, uh, wow. a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that was a nice memory. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, on stage three of that race, I was battling um, just to finish, and I was so far behind that the, the sag wagon, which is the, the last car that follows the peloton. And normally has enough room in there to pick riders up who just call it a day. That's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, they came up next to me and said, you're too far behind. Um, get in. Get in. <laughs> Except uh, we stopped on the side of the road and there was actually no room in the sag wagon. So they said, oh, just keep riding a little bit until we get to the next team car or someone in the in the sag wagon who can get out and, yeah, okay. and make room. So we did. Um, and, yeah, I'd, I'd prepared really hard for that race and I was just really disappointed in myself for being so bad and getting smashed. Um and then I had to stay with the team for the next two days. So you're out of the race then? I was out of the race, yeah. And then I just had to stay in the, the hotel and basically go on team helper duty and make biddens and race food. And it's just probably That's the shit, worst yeah. thing that can happen to you after you have yeah, been... Yeah, you want to just get the hell away from a race. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, then we've had the three-hour drive back home and I'd planned to, to go to Andorra in Pada La Casa the day after. Um, and we've driven into the... Uh, you wanted like, to come up here and do a big training camp. Yeah, you? training yeah. camp. Yeah, which I was already sort of a bit dark about having gone so badly in this race. My motivation was pretty low. Um, and I was sleeping in the team car as we, as we drove into, I guess, the team base where I'd parked my car. And uh, everyone in the car sort of like bumped me and sort of woke me up and they, they were all just shocked like... And I'm like, oh, what? And then I looked up and I'm like, oh, that's a bit, that's a bit crap. I've got two flat tires in my car. Yeah. And then they're like, no. And I looked again, and actually the two rear wheels on my tire on my car had been stolen. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and you you're supposed to drive next morning straight to Andorra. Yeah, really early. So I planned like was a big drive. It was eight hours or something. And I was yeah, everything get up at booked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I booked the hotel. And um, you used all your money for for the hotel, and you're like, oh, I'm not. Yeah, I was fully committed to it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, I didn't have much money. I yeah. wasn't on a pro salary or yeah. anything. So I sort of, it was a big investment um, to, to come up here. And yeah. then, yeah, my wheels had been stolen off the car. And I was, yeah, I was pretty angry. Yeah. Um, but I guess, um, yeah, I got through it. I had some really good people um, in the area that helped me with it. Um, but also had to do a bit myself. I remember being, it was like midnight and I was there with um, Jean-Pierre, who was a, a helper of the team. He was a 60-year-old guy. And we're there um, basically putting the car onto a trailer so we could move it um, back to where I was living um, and then hopefully go and get some wheels from a wrecker the next day. Yeah. Um, so it was big credit to Jean-Pierre for helping me. Um, and he got in contact with some guy he knew who had some wheels. And I got two sets of, 
two two wheels with brand new tyres on for sixty euro. <laughs> yeah. So it was actually an upgrade. Pimped out the Clio. Yeah, nice. Um, and then yeah, drove up here. And um, the, got here in the end. The part that I love most about that story was when you were telling me. I think you either stopped on the way or your mum and dad called you on the way and you're trying to explain the story to them and it obviously wasn't, and maybe also people listening now, it doesn't have the weight on it that that situation did. But, you know, you explain the story, yeah, look, I got my wheels stolen and, you know, yada, yada. And I'm like, wow, what happened? But anyway, cool, I'm just driving up to Andorra now. I've got everything sorted, you know. And I reminisced with that story so much because I was like, it's a real turning point and you could have easily just gone it sounds such a small thing but you could have easily just gone fuck that i'm done yeah you know, i've had close. a bad ra- bad race i'm not going to make it my last this was like the last straw that could have just sort of you know broken the camel's back fucking wheels aren't on i'm done i've got no money to pay for those wheels you know yada 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 but you're like, nah, I'm, I'm getting it done. I got through it. And I always remember talking to you about that up here. And I, I remember riding away from you that day. I'm like, you know what? You're getting all the hard stuff out of the way now. When you uh, when you eventually become professional, it's going to be smooth sailing, you know? And that's sort of at the point that we're at now. You know, you've had, since that point, two more years, was it? Yeah, I spent three years in France. Yeah, totally. three years in France. And... Now you've ridden on a Dutch team, which is what is it, Conti or yeah, Pro Conti? Yeah, Continental yeah. team. And you're looking to step into the pro ranks um, next year. So, you know, is it does it feel now for you that you're there? Like, is this is this what it means? Like, is this what it means to make it to be pro, or do you feel like now you know what I've made it? I've I've set up myself over here. I can handle anything now. I speak French fluently. Um, I've got the results that I never dreamed of winning a stage eleven here. You know, like becoming pro. That's the icing on the cake. But you know, to a degree, you know, we're speaking about. Well, you and I were speaking just before this podcast about maybe signing with a pro continental team, which is the team below World Tour or signing with a World Tour team. You know, they're they're the two options for you at the moment. And it's like, if one of those come off, in my opinion, you've made it. You know, like, for me, it's it's inevitable that you're going to be here for a long time because I feel like you've gone through the hard stuff already. And for you now, it's just going to be about cycling again. Getting all the lifestyle stuff out of the way. You've done that. You've, you've, you've sort of met those hurdles along the way and you've got over them and got through it. Is that how you sort of see it now? Or do you still see like, unless I'm, you know, world tour, I'm not going to see it as being a success. No, I think for sure I'm at the point now where, yeah, I think next year is going to be the year where the, the dream's coming true, whether it's at pro continental level or, or world tour level. Um, to me, that is pro. Um, and that's what I've always strived to, to be um but funnily enough it feels different to what i probably thought it would feel um when i was 10 years old thinking about it yeah um because the thing that probably excites me the most is actually setting up my own apartment and uh making yeah my own life over here rather than being in a team apartment whether that be with the french team or with um seg racing who i'm with now Mm. um 
which is great. You know, having teams who, who have an apartment for you, um, that's really good um, and probably pretty rare as well. Um, but yeah, that's the most exciting part, I guess. And it's funny because that's the off-the-bike side of things. Um, to me, the, the, the on-bike, um, that's not really going to change. I'm going to do everything mm. pretty similarly. I'm going to be training, um, racing. That, that doesn't really change. But yeah, I think I'm going to have more security and freedom off the bike which is pretty nice that's so that's yeah it's so funny that you say it like that because to a degree you're going to be doing the same stuff that we do in oz racing for a team back there at an amateur level say but you know to wrap up the whole making the jump thing it is so much about the lifestyle you know it's like that's the thing, creating your own life over here. You know, the cycling is a part of that, sure. But it's being comfortable, like you said, having the apartment in the right place, having your own friends, speaking the language, you know. And that's, like I just said before, I feel like you've come the full circle now and you're like, I I have made it, you know. And, and that's what I sort of see as, I'm using inverted commas, making it um as yeah not necessarily being world tour or you know whatever being something on it on a piece of paper it's being complete in your life you know yeah of course the cycling part of that is very important being a professional and a good professional but outside of that also being happy living your life over here and you know we've got and that was the changing point for me I think, yeah is when i realized that if I was happy off the bike, I was generally going pretty well on the bike. Mm. Um, whether I'd been training the house down or not, um, if I was content with what I was doing, yeah, I was generally not going too badly on the bike. Mm. And I've kept that with me ever since, I guess, and probably uh, frustrate a few coaches here and there with challenging what they say. But yeah, I guess I've changed, um, changed the way I look at bike riding and I don't really want to do anything within cycling unless I enjoy it. So if there's um, yeah if there's certain things that I don't really like in training or or in a in a preparation for an event I don't really believe in doing it because I don't think it's going to help me. Mm. Yeah, sweet. That's sweet, mate. Well, um, I hope we've given everyone a little insight to uh, what's coming or what's what it takes. But um, Nick Schultz is going to be the man coming through, and we'll see in the next few. Uh, well, hopefully in the next few weeks where he's uh, going to be riding next year. Thanks, Mitch. Merci. So there we have it. The first potty back. Great having Nick on there. And um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you'd love to hear more of or what you think of the last few ones. And we can keep rolling from here. Looks like the potty's back on track. So keep your ears tuned. Cheers.